Thank you so much. Good morning. As we're turning now to the book of Galatians, is our new book to be studying over these coming months. What we've done over the past few weeks leading up to was to look carefully at Acts 13 and Acts 14, because there you will find in those two chapters the whole ministry in the region of Galatia that Paul had involved himself in. That means then, when you are reading Galatians, you're thinking about what happened in Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13. What happened in Iconium in chapter 14? What happened in Lystra as Paul and Barnabas began to argue very clearly the sufficiency of the gospel to people who lacked a Christian understanding of even the basic tenets of the faith. So they had to get into the mindset of the secular worldview. Well, this morning now, after we have examined carefully how Paul ministered to both religious unbelievers and secular unbelievers, he now, around A.D. 48, then pens his thoughts almost immediately upon his return to his home base because he doesn't want these new churches to lose sight of the basic elements of the Christian gospel. And so the gospel is at the forefront of what we're going to be looking here in the book of Galatians that spills over into the way in which the adult Bible fellowships, particularly during the third period, the mix and the young marrieds and so on, are processing and pondering what Christ has done. So we want to work in tandem. We want to be able to think clearly and biblically what God has said regarding this good news for you and for me in this bad news-oriented world. So we pick it up now in chapter 1, in verse 1, reading down now through verse 5 in Galatians, where we find these words. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to look at these five verses together, verse 4 in particular, as we focus our attention upon our Lord. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. (coughs) Our Father, in a world of turmoil, endless challenges, Difficulties, ranging from the personal to the global. We come into your presence looking for something solid, something sure, something unchangeable. The good news of Jesus Christ. We come not looking for updated opinions. We're not coming to simply embrace latest trends. 
Any church that tries to do it is typically five minutes behind the scene. What we're trying to do is to deal with the eternal because that's always, always contemporary. We want the eternal to come crashing in on the present and to speak truth in a way that helps us to understand the dilemma of life itself and the answer to the ultimate questions found in Christ Jesus. So we embrace questions. The empty tune speaks very clearly to the fact that you can bring your questions to a God who's got answers and to address the emptiness of a soul that can only be filled by the eternal grace of Christ. You know our needs. You know the struggles we face, the challenges of life, what keeps us from being what we want to be and ought to be. God, I thank you so much that you stepped in through Christ who died for our sins. So, Father, with that in mind, as we are with the book of Galatians, trying to get our arms around the depth and the breadth of the gospel, again, now we pray that you will warm these hearts, engage these minds, align these wills. Because again, our Father, now we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been watching over the course of these last hours of what's been occurring in Nairobi, Kenya, haven't we? Where the updated accounts provide us with information that 59 have lost their lives. 175 minimum have been injured after suspected members of an Al-Qaeda-linked group known as Al-Shabaab, a Somali militant group, attacked an upscale mall in Nairobi, Kenya. Ten to 15 gunmen involved. And as we've been tracking hour by hour what has been occurring there, again, what grips our attention is that this is a microcosm of the global scale, of the challenge that comes in understanding why sin affects this world to the degree it does, and where is ultimate deliverance to be found. I was struck by an interview an interview of a woman who had said that she had been hiding under a car in the basement parking garage and stated, I called my husband to ask the soldiers to come and rescue me. Because I couldn't get out on my own. I called to ask my husband, ask the soldiers to come and rescue me. 
because I couldn't get out on my own. That verbal response to this physical dilemma in many ways spells out for us the ultimate issues that are found in this world. Because in the ultimate sense of the word, there has been this incredible hostage-taking where people have been incarcerated, enslaved, entangled in the penalty and power of sin and have found that they can't get out on their own. And they reach a point where they cry out for someone else to come and to rescue them from this ultimate dilemma. The gospel is the rescue mission that God has instated for humanity, whereby Jesus Christ via Bethlehem to Calvary secures the rescue. What I want to do with you is to focus our attention now on these opening verses of Galatians. With Acts 13 and 14 in our background. Because what Paul now finds upon his return to his church that had sent him off was that the Galatian churches, those fledgling believers, now are being introduced to some false teachings where a group of individuals known as Judaizers have appeared on the scene and are saying salvation by grace to faith in Christ is not in itself sufficient. You must be circumcised as well. And you say, well, Gary, how does that relate to 2013 thinking? You and I will continuously encounter people who are trying to add human works to Christ's finished work, trying to buy in some way, shape, or form a form of release and rescue from God. In essence, what their works are saying to God is that what Christ's work did on the cross was not sufficient in their estimation. So they've got to add their sinful works to Christ's sinless work. But to do so, then, is to argue against what God has firmly established for you and for me. So what I want to do with you now, very clearly, biblically, practically, is to work through these opening verses and to examine within our own inner spheres what God wants to say to you and to me with regard to the depth and the breadth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the fact that Christ has died for our sins. This good news so transformed the one who wrote this book, he refuses to refer to himself as Saul. Because the very first word and first name which occurs is the name Paul the name which describes the one who had set himself out in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus to persecute believers who he thought, in fact, 
had a contrary view of what rescue is all about as relates to God's will. But God crashed in on his life. God ever do that to you? Just simply crash in on your body and say, that is not the way you were meant to live, the way you were meant to think and the direction you were meant to go. So in Acts chapter 9, God crashed in and Saul becomes Paul. And now as he reflects, he says, as an apostle sent not from men nor men, almost to challenge the notion of those Judaizers who evidently have been sent by men or by a man. I want you to notice one little preposition. Don't overlook even the smallest of words in your Bible. (coughs) But by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Stop right there. It does not read by Jesus Christ and by God the Father, does it? It reads by Jesus Christ and God the Father. One preposition for God the Father, God the Son, in essence what he's saying is that they're equal. There is spiritual equality in that that Godhead. That means, then, that the sinless one must be taken very seriously in the rescue mission that he performed on our account. Because if he is sinless, God the Son, equal to God the Father, then what God the Father views regarding God the Son is significant. And what did God the Father do regarding God the Son? Raised him from the dead, and with all the brothers and sisters, with me now. They're attesting to this fact. So to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does not read from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The second time one preposition is used for two persons. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying grace and peace. And he's saying to all those that have been so overwhelmed by feeling as if they've been taken hostage in this sinful world, you can't experience peace until you first experience grace. Grace precedes peace. Peace speaks of the Hebrew word shalom, which would now speak to the hearts of all those in Galatia who had heard Paul share the gospel in their synagogues. Grace was that tremendous irony, that tremendous word that gets tied to it now, carissa, grace, irony, peace, tied together. So now the Greeks also, out in that marketplace, as Paul spoke in Lystra, grasped this. So he's got this encompassing phrase for Jew and Gentile alike. Grace and peace. Grace precedes peace. One preposition God the Father, God the Son. And then he launches in, doesn't he now, to this powerful work of the gospel spelled out at the cross. And what we're about to do now is to examine five significant distinctives of the gospel of Christ emerging from these verses. Check them out. Notice the first phrase in verse 4. 
who gave himself. What does that teach you? That number one, the Lord Jesus Christ died voluntarily having given himself. This is a giving of life, not a taking of life. In that tremendous parable that Jesus Christ provided his people regarding the good shepherd, he stated the reason in verse 17 of John 10, my father loves me is that I lay down my life. He's in control. Pilate, you thought you were in control. You thought this was a taking of life. Sanhedrin, you thought you were in control. You assumed you were taking a life. Opponents of Jesus Christ, you think you're in control. That this is a taking of life. But in John 10, verse 18, he clearly argues, no one takes it from me. Comma. But I lay it down of my own accord. What that means then is that the sinful ones did not have ultimate say over the sinless one when it comes to the matter of the gospel. But rather the sinless one has say over the sinful ones when it comes to the matter of the gospel. If they had simply taken his life, the sinful ones have control over the gospel. But because he gives of himself, the sinless one has say over the gospel Therefore, we have to listen very carefully then to what is being taught here. He doesn't say, they took my life. No. In John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, I lay down my life. You see the difference? He wasn't at the mercy of fate. His death was not a clash with coincidence. He wasn't overpowered by a greater force of evil. In sovereign terms, in eternity past, this plan was laid out and the sinless one dies for the sinful ones. Therefore, the sinless one has say regarding the gospel to the sinful ones, by the fact that he laid down his life voluntarily, therefore sovereignly, rather than his opponents taking his life on their terms. This is all about God's terms, which means then authentic gospel is on God's terms. Not our terms. He's on that cross. They're assuming that as he has cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
they're crying out that Elijah needs to come down to save him. But then in Matthew 27, verse 50, is a very powerful statement on that cross. I don't want you to overlook. Listen to this. When Jesus cried out in a loud voice, imagine that in the intensity of his pain, he is so much in control, he doesn't whisper. As if the pain is sovereign over him. He proclaims in a loud voice because he's sovereign over the pain. And then Matthew informs us in chapter 27, verse 50, he gave up his spirit. It is a direct action by Jesus Christ upon his spirit. He was so much in control on that cross, he gave up his spirit. It doesn't say the spirit left him. as if he simply succumbed. For you see, on that cross, this is not Jesus Christ succumbing. This is Jesus Christ overcoming. And the gospel story makes all the difference in the world when it says, who gave Himself. It is a giving of life, not a taking of life. I lay down my own life on his terms, John 10, verse 17 and 18. He gave up his spirit, didn't just simply leave him, Matthew 27, verse 50. Therefore, this is achieved by Christ, not by others. Not by Herod, not by Pilate, not by the Sanhedrin, not by circumstances. This was done voluntarily. Unlike the lambs being sent to slaughter during the Passover. And that's what distinguishes this ultimate final lamb who died voluntarily on our behalf. 1943. The SS Dorchester. It's a dreary winter day. 903 troops, four chaplains, including Moody alumnus Lieutenant George Fox. World War II is fully underway. Ships heading across the cold North Atlantic. German U 2 boats lurking. And at 12 on the morning of February 3rd, German torpedo rips into the ship she is going down, the men cry. Listen to this. A young GI crept up to one of the chaplains. I've lost my life jacket, he said. Take this, the chaplain said, handing the soldier his jacket. And before the ship sank, each chaplain gave his life jacket to another man. And the heroic chaplains then linked arms, lifted their voices in prayers. The Dorchester went down. And Lieutenant Fox and his fellow pastors were awarded posthumously the Distinguished Service 
cross. Have you ever pondered the significance of the way in which the military handles and hands out an award tied to the cross? As a statement of heroic rescue and deliverance. It's etched into the fabric of the soul of a nation, this world. A woman cries out, I called my husband and asked the soldiers to come and rescue me because I couldn't get out on my own. And when it comes to the whole matter of the penalty and the power of sin, We need God, the sinless one, to set forth his strategy to rescue the sinful ones because we can't get out on our own. So the gospel message means then that the Lord Jesus Christ died voluntarily having given himself. You've underlined that phrase, who gave himself, was not taken from him. Otherwise, the sinful ones are in control of the sinless one. And the world has taken control of the gospel. But now there's a second distinctive here. And you've marched on to the next phrase. For it reads, who gave himself for our sins, because the second distinctive is this. That number two, the Lord Jesus Christ died sacrificially, having died for our sins. The Bible informs us that there is a connection between sin and death. There is a cause and effect relationship. Throughout the course of history, sin is ours, the death is ours. What distinguishes the cross of Jesus Christ is this. The sin is ours. The death is his. In that tremendous teaching in the Garden of Eden, God said, the day in which you eat of this, you will surely die. And they did, spiritually. Because spiritual death is separation. The soul from God. Eventually, physically. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. But when you embrace the good news of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, you don't die eternally, which is the separation of the body and the soul from God forever. Spiritual death, physical death, Eternal death have one thing in common, separation. My God, my God, our Lord cries out, Why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in all of eternity, there is a rupture in that perfect harmonious relationship in the Godhead. 
The sin is ours. The death is Christ. Notice then that little word for who gave himself for our sins. Doesn't say that he gave himself in his sins. Who gave himself for our sins so we won't die in our sins. For eternity. Now, look very carefully at what's happening here. Because that little word for tells you that Jesus Christ did this for you. You don't do this for God. The gospel is not what you do for God, but what God has done for you. This involves substitution. Now listen very carefully at what we're about to say. John Stott says it better than I can, but I'll give it a shot. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for sin for for man. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. In the Garden of Eden, the temptation was you will be like God. Succumbing to that temptation, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. But the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for men. Take it one step further. I'd argue that the ultimate issues that both secular unbelievers and religious unbelievers share in common is that they've got an alternative substitution plan. They've substituted their works for Christ's work. They've substituted their God for the true God. Ultimately, unbelief involves false substitutions. This is why Paul addresses the danger of another gospel in verse 6. So I pondered that, went back to the Quran, and in Surah, for Surah is a chapter, 86 Surahs penned while in Mecca, 28 in Medina. In 156, in Surah 4, 156, Muhammad declared, and because of their speaking of the Jews' disbelief and uttering against Mary, and speaking of Mary, a grave false charge. Sarah 157. Listen carefully for the substitution. Can you pick it up? And because of their saying and boast, we killed the Messiah, Esau, whom they refer to as Jesus, son of Miriam, the messenger of Allah. Listen now. But they killed him not nor crucified him. But it appeared so to them. 
For the resemblance of Esau was put over another man, and they killed that man. And those who differ therein are full of doubts. What has happened in Islam? They came up with a substitute for the work of the cross. They've got somebody else on that cross rather than Jesus. Because in Islam, which denies original sin and affirms the sovereignty of Allah, how could Allah allow for his prophet Esau to die on that cross? Therefore, he rescued Esau and took him to heaven as an ultimate messenger. Do you see what Islam has done? It has come up with a counterfeit substitute. Somebody else sacrificed for Esau rather than Jesus being sacrificed for that other. Now, the biblical believer, the one who embraces the gospel, now is so burdened, I hope you are, of sharing the gospel with both religious unbelievers and secular unbelievers, that you begin to think through, now what is the, what is the substitute in the mindset of the secular unbeliever? What is the substitute in the mindset of the religious unbeliever? Where are they substituting works for grace? Where are they substituting their God for the true God? And then you figured out the starting point, and then move towards that ultimate point of Jesus Christ himself. But it means then you and I are going to have to watch the news, engage in great conversation, analyze what's happening in this world, and discern substitutions along the way. And contrast it with what God has said in Isaiah, where in chapter 53, Jesus Christ is being referenced where God himself would say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father establishes a substitute for us because the world is in danger of substituting for Jesus, for God. And that is another gospel that Paul sets out to refute. Look what you've done so far. You're still in verse 4. Who gave himself? He died voluntarily. doesn't mean he took his life. They took his life. He gave his life. Again in verse 4, for our sins. He died sacrificially, which means he's our substitute. Having died for our sins. But now here comes, here comes your your third distinctive, that the Lord Jesus Christ died purposefully to rescue us from this evil age. Notice we're still in verse 4. Two, little T-O, there's the purpose, to rescue us from the present evil age. Stop right there. The tremendous word which is used here in the original language, exalatai, was used to describe the rescue of the Israelites from the bondage of Egyptian slavery 
as described by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 34. The same word was used in Acts 12, verse 11, to describe the deliverance, the rescue from Peter when imprisoned under the auspices of Herod the king. The word was used again in Acts 28, verse 27, when there was a murder plot unfolding, and Paul had been informed by a loved one who in turn sent that man to a commander who spoke of the fact to his authorities that he had rescued Paul from those who had intended to kill Paul. What God has done is that he has set in motion in our mindset a longing for rescue. So when you watch what's occurring in these various scenes globally, look for substitutions. What is it that was cried out when the hostage takers appeared on the scene? They were attempting to take life for the sake of Allah, I say substitution because God gave of his life for the sake of us. And this was done voluntarily. This was done sacrificially. This was done purposefully. And you're still in verse 4 to rescue us from this present evil age. But notice it doesn't say to rescue us from this world. To rescue us from this evil age. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. You are rescued in the world without being removed from the world. My prayer is that you not that you is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Who said that? Jesus. John seventeen, verse fifteen. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And then Paul writes to rescue us from the present evil age. Seems like yesterday. But it was 2010. Millions of people around the world were watching a captivating story of the Chilean miners trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock. 33 men desperate. Collapse of a main tunnel sealing their exit. I think of Camus writing, no exit. Despair. But here you find that God uses even these stories as illustrations of his exit strategy. On the surface above, the Chilean rescue team worked around the clock consulting NASA, meeting with experts, AAP tells us. They designed a 13-foot-tall capsule drilled. First a communication hole, then an excavation tunnel. And I think of the prophets of old who were the communication means. 
preparing for that point of excavation. On October 13, 2010, the men began to emerge, slapping high fives, leading victory chants, a great-grandfather, a 44-year-old who was planning a wedding, a 19-year-old. E.P. tells us all had different stories, but all had made the same decision. They trusted someone else to save them. September 21st, 2013. I called my husband and asked the soldiers to come and rescue me. Because I couldn't get out on my own. So now we have one in the ultimate sense of the word, in the richness of biblical gospel, who gave himself, wasn't taken from him, for our sins, not in his sins, to rescue us, but not necessarily remove us from the present evil age. Here comes your fourth distinctive. The Lord Jesus Christ died voluntarily according to the will of our God and Father, because there it reads still in verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father, which means then he did this according to the will of of God. And in, in that great, great expression of his tremendous allegiance, you see, to God the Father, Jesus Christ, in John 6, said in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 6, verse 38. He said that before going to the cross. And then in the intensity of that moment where he saw the cross shadow now looming larger and larger, he goes in Gethsemane and prays, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. But at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is perfect harmony between the first and second members of the Trinity because we've noted earlier in our study one preposition for the Father and the Son occurs twice in verses 1 through 3, uniting them as they are at the cross because there is perfect harmony of will, a total commitment to the fact that Son was willing to lay down his life for us according to the will of the Father. And we're gripped by this plan. But here's the beauty. This, this is the exclamation point to your, to your personal experience. 
doesn't end there. Not for us, not for Paul. Look carefully at what it says in verse 1. Paul, not Saul. Why? He encountered the resurrected Savior on the road to Damascus. An apostle sent not from men nor by man, even though there may have been this opposing force that have now appeared on the scene in Galatia, attempting to offer a substitute to what had been offered in terms of the gospel. But by Jesus Christ and God the Father, not by Jesus Christ and by God the Father, one preposition, who raised him from the dead. Fifthly, the Lord Jesus Christ died triumphantly, having been raised from the dead by God the Father. Which means then, when you look very carefully at this fifth point, that Jesus Christ died triumphantly, having been raised from the dead, that the resurrection then validates the work of Christ, and furthermore, accentuates the teachings of Paul regarding the gospel, because Paul is able to say, you know, all those others who were sent from men or by man, I want to tell you something. This gospel is authentic because I come not on the basis of men or man. I come on the basis of the one who died. Voluntarily, sacrificially, purposefully, obediently, but triumphantly because I encountered him on the road to Damascus. He lives. And because he lives, the resurrection validates the work of Jesus Christ when he said it is finished. Wow. So now you look at all the substitutes for the gospel in this world. You figure out your starting point in sharing the gospel. Is that a secular unbeliever? Okay, what are their secular substitutes? Is that a religious unbeliever? Okay, what are their religious substitutes? In Islam, they shout out that they are taking life for the sake of Allah. But here in the Bible, here is God sending His Son. Christ gives Himself for the sake of us. And here is a woman on the news who says, I called my husband to ask the soldiers to come and rescue me because I couldn't get out on my own. And Jesus came to rescue you and me from this present evil age. And the work is completed. And the responsibility lies now to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior and to share the authentic gospel with those who are embracing substitutes. Let's stand together. So, Father, thank you now. You don't need many words. You use succinct phrases and statements to communicate powerful, lasting truths. So may we get a hold now of these opening verses. Apply it in our, in our conversations in the adult Bible fellowships. 
share it at home, raise questions. Okay, so what does that mean? How do we take this into the culture? How do I talk to a secular unbeliever? What are his or her substitutes? And how do I bring the ultimate substitute, Jesus, into the ultimate conversation and dialogue of life? And for the one who's bought into an alternative gospel, in any of these morning services, I pray now that he or she will simply put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus and his rescue mission alone as Savior and Lord of life. Commit him to you now. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.